0: Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 95.
1: Pigs perform both in the woods and on pasture and on
0: cover crops, but they have the power to transform soil health. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hartage. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy to follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at org slash grazing it's n-o-b-l-e dot org forward slash grazing be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you on today's episode we have rob dowdle of dowdle family farms located in mississippi Rob is a pastor and a 7th generation farmer. We discuss pasture poultry, beef cattle, and pigs with the overgrazing topic covering honeybees. There's a lot in today's episode and I think you will enjoy it. Before we talk to Rob, 10 seconds about my farm. We've been slightly warmer than usual and we've had plenty of water. Fescue or cool season grasses are starting to wake up in the pasture, seeing a little bit of growth, which really excites me. It's a little earlier, I think, than normal, but I'm I'm here for it. Also, last week we talked about the Grass Farmer Book Club. We have one spot open for a guest reader. If you're interested in that, hop over to GrassFarmerBookClub.com and be our guest. With those things said. Let's talk to Rob. Rob, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. I'm glad to be here, Kyle. Thanks so
1: much for having me. Uh, enjoyed, uh, enjoyed listening to the last few episodes of your podcast. Uh, sounds like some really good stuff y'all are doing. and
0: I look forward to hearing even more. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Rob, to get started, can you tell us about yourself and your operation? Yeah, I'm Rob
1: Doddle. I'm 40 years old. Um, I grew up on the farm. In fact, when I was in high school, we had a an uh, elementary school. My dad had a beef feeder operation where he'd buy cows in the fall, sell them the following fall. Um, and um, that's how I grew up farming. Um, we rented some land, and then we had, of course, land on our, our own farm as well. Um, the farm has been in our family since the original land grant in 1826, for sure. Oh, I think wow. it was 1824, but the first time we actually had records of paying taxes was 1826. It's kind of an interesting thing. <laughs> uh, so I'm the seventh. My siblings and I are the seventh generation uh, on who have worked on the farm, and my kids are the eighth. And of course, they're cousins as oh, well. Wow. So it's it's been uh, a lot of fun. When I graduated from high school, though, um, I, college, school, work, and all, and I actually did not come back to the farm until moved back to the area in 2017 uh, and then started um, growing vegetables and that kind of stuff, which I had done uh, when we lived in Georgia. Had a small market garden, sold to a few restaurants, but really was just trying to grow nutritious food for Myself and my family for some health-related reasons, and um, when we moved back to the farm, I started growing a garden. But gardening, market gardening or whatever, is real, real labor-intensive, and as labor-intensive oh, yeah. as livestock can be, it is. Uh, it's a whole different story with um, vegetables, but because of the animal husbandry experience. Um, You know, we started off slowly with chickens, which was a foolish endeavor on my part. Um, But there really wasn't a plan. I just wanted to have some chickens for the eggs and then um, jumped into pigs. And since then, I have been hooked on on raising pigs. Uh, Of course, we still raise cattle. My dad has a cow-calf operation now that I help him with. Uh, I finish out some of those steers and and all on grass uh, and then sell them to the local community as well. Um, But yeah, that's the animal husbandry part of it has been my favorite part since I was knee high to a short goat, as I think Louis L'Amour would have have said uh, in some of his (laughs) books. I was, in fact, I castrated my first calf. I don't think I was 10, but by the time I was, 14, I was doing most of the castration when we'd get the calves coming in to the farm. I mean, it's just, I, I loved the work. My siblings didn't care for it a whole lot, but I i
0: loved it. And um, it's its a lot of fun to me. I know when when you say that your siblings are, weren't big fans of it, both my siblings, um, when they got the opportunity, they moved off the farm and they've stayed as far away as they can. In fairness, they do come back and help once in a while. I really think they use it as a photo op, but they do, once in a while, they'll show up to, to do something. One of mine, you you're talking about castrating a calf early. It made me think of something that happened early on. My brother, he won't be happy I'm sharing this, but I remember, I think my brother was five and I was seven. And dad wanted us to bring the pickup out through a gate, out to the barn for some reason. I don't even remember why. Because we had beef cows, we had hogs, we even had goats back then, and chickens. So, um, Steve got in the pickup, and he was driving it through the gate. And he drove the truck through the gate, but he didn't get far enough over, and he stripped all the chrome off one side of the pickup. I I can remember that. I can remember. And, And here's something a little bit more shocking from that memory. I remember my dad handling it pretty calmly. My dad is is not always the calmest person. I remember him handling that pretty calmly. Which, uh, you you're talking about early memories that just brought that to mind? Yeah. Now, when you got out of high school and went to college, did you plan on coming back to the farm? I did not.
1: Um, it never really was my intention. Um... So I'm a pastor by training. In fact, I'm still a full-time pastor now and just part-time farmer, if there is such a thing. I don't think there's such a thing as a part-time farmer or a part-time pastor, no matter what one's oh, compensation yeah. is. But, um, And so when I went to college, then I went to seminary, then more seminary, and then started working um, pastoring a church in South Georgia. Um, and, and even when we were in South Georgia, the funny thing, there was a a guy, um, I mean, I'm talking about remote Georgia. Um, there was a guy who was selling grass finished beef, pastured chickens and that kind of thing. I'd go to his farm to help him process chickens. And we purchased whole beef from him and eggs as well. And I say that to say this, that it's, it really wasn't quite my intention to come back, but even when I was in Georgia pastoring, I still really in, came back to that that agricultural type um, work. I just I oh, just yeah. enjoy messing with livestock. Now, don't get me wrong; I don't particularly enjoy you know processing the animals. I, I don't get a thrill out of it. I recognize the value, right? In it. But, um. I do enjoy that animal husbandry. And so but when we when we left Georgia in fact the church there there was no there were no conflict we were there 8 years. Um the main reason we came back home was for a lifestyle change. And also because our our kids um at the time were were 1, 3 or 4 and 7 or 8. And both our both sets of their grandparents live in Mississippi. Um, about 140 miles apart. Uh, both of them are healthy, and we just wanted our kids to be closer to family. Uh, we wanted hope, yeah. uh, um, the opportunity to have lifestyle changes um, and and intentionally came back to the farm for those reasons. Um, but, you know, I, I never really had a plan until a couple of years or a year maybe or so before we actually did it
0: oh yes and one of the first things you you did the the garden and then you got poultry i assume poultry poultry has a low level or low bar of entry you know um you can get chickens pretty easy and they're they're kind of the gateway animal for so many people how did that journey go for you um were you doing pasture poultry or were you having them in a chicken coop how did you manage them we had pastured
1: poultry and to be honest with you it was just a debacle this may be a tad controversial but poultry is one of those things it's great for you to have a dozen or so in your backyard where you can manage them well uh i think it would be worthwhile and this is especially true with egg layers not necessarily meat poultry. oh yeah but but or have several hundred, I would dare say even maybe several thousand, you know, on a much larger scale. But the the time and energy and effort for a couple hundred trying to to move them around the pasture to keep them safe and protected, um, I mean, we spent so much time and energy. and We were selling our eggs for five or six dollars a dozen. Sometimes they'd sell, sometimes they wouldn't. We had them priced based on you know, our input costs, but because of the scale oh, of the yeah. overhead, particularly in labor, it was just uh, a lot of work. Um, I got out of the egg layers and, and kept doing some meat chickens for a year, and we had some, some folks that lived in the area they have since moved away. But one of them asked me, why are you getting rid of the egg layers? They're such good eggs. I'm like, they're great eggs. But from a profitability standpoint, you know, we're spending... Hours you're doing half the work and you're not even getting paid, and that's that's fine. But from a profitability standpoint, with meat chickens in the same kind of coop design, I could raise those meat chickens for six seven weeks in that same coop, not not same coop, but that that mobile pen that I was right. using, and produce more profit from that one group of meat birds in one year in in that six or seven week period than I could for all the egg layers in that I had on the farm, you know, uh, in a whole year. And, and it's a quick return on investment. It's, you don't keep product. You don't have to keep selling small batches of eggs, you know, to people here and there. It's a good business plan, but it's in terms of predators, in terms of so many other things, you've got to really be dialed in. Um, and I think it's best to be on the farm at least twice a day. And even though we're living five miles away for a part-time farmer, it's just not, it just wasn't worth the hassle for me.
0: Growing up on a dairy, we we started dairying when I was, I get 13, we moved out and started dairying with my grandparents. And then we built our own dairy uh, two miles down the road from our house. And it's only two miles, or only was two miles. But... That makes all the difference on just getting out there and doing a few chores. Uh, I have to admit, the properties I have leased that's a few miles from me, I don't make over as quickly as I do the ones right here at the place. It's, it's just the nature of it. So I get that, where just a few miles away makes a big difference. Were you growing Cornish crosses or were you using a slow growing breed? Um, this is
1: where i multiplied my foolishness i dare say stupidity what <laughs> i was doing was stupid not that other people are are doing it um i used a, a more of a heritage uh breed of australorps uh mostly oh, black yes. australorps but there are blue australorps and all as well and so and i was breeding them and i did sell some some breeding uh stock of the australorps and and worked well shipped them uh, you know we had the certification from the state that we were uh, uh, salmonella yes. free or whatever and had our birds tested for that um and so i sold hatching eggs and many other things um but you know when you're breeding birds you get roughly half males and half females and you got to do something with them uh, and if they're egg layers, the males don't lay eggs nearly as well as the females do. <laughs> they they don't. And so... Science has not figured that one out. So for those, the males I would raise until they were about 20 weeks old would get about a two-pound carcass when I processed those. And those were mostly for our family, and it was great-tasting meat. It's just expensive as all get-out for what you get oh, out of it. Oh, yeah. Um. But for most of our sales, we did a Cornish Cross. I've tried a few of the Freedom Rangers and those other kind of hybrid type meat birds and was not particularly impressed with any of them. Um, But a large part of that is, you know, when you're in the farm and you're not, when you're there every day, maybe even twice a day for a little while, but, you know, keeping the predators at bay, even when they're. When they're in a well-built pen, not a pen with chicken wire, but even in a well-built pen, it's that you move every day. It's just a good bit more work. You can still get raccoons stick their arms through the, you know, the oh yeah, well, woven wire. You can still get um, raccoons actually sticking their hands up underneath the pen, and so it's it it just we we kept having some issues with predators. And um, I quickly realized that I was not doing the chickens well. We had already gotten pigs. We'd had pigs for a year or so at that point. And that's when I realized that pastured pigs was, um,
0: for me anyway, by far the way to get. uh, And and why did you choose to get into pigs? (laughs) Because I'm, again, because I'm foolish. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No. Um...
1: The first pigs we got were American guinea hogs, and I there's some story, oh, yeah. and I I don't quite remember it. They they were there. We had four of them, and they were great pigs. We processed them for ourselves. Um, but I, I'm not really sure what first attracted me to to getting pigs. Those American guinea hogs we got, it was kind of a, I think somebody dropped them off at the farm or something. I I don't remember the whole. The whole story there. We've had so many animals dropped off the farm. (laughs) It's not even funny, but, um, and so I I really enjoyed having them. Um, but then, you know, so we got some actual meat type pigs, you know, the Chester Whites, Deer um, Herefords and, and those. And of course they perform so much differently. Um, I would dare say even better. And you know pigs are man, they're so lively, they're so much fun i mean they they have a lot of fun, chickens, yeah, you see them out there scratching and they look nice, and they look great, and maybe you can pet them, but pigs I mean they just have so much more personality, and they're so they're such a great livestock it's It's really hard to articulate the the joy that pigs bring and the life pigs bring to a farm when they're happy.
0: We had pigs when I was a little kid, um, so I'm talking the the mid-70s to late-70s, maybe, maybe even into the early 80s a little bit, but I know pigs went, dropped really in price, and um, Dad sold out, and we were rid of all the pigs, and then in high school, going through ag and stuff, FFA, I... I raised a few pigs then, not necessarily for show, but I raised a few then and got out of it. I love pigs and I talk about it with my wife. Um I wouldn't mind getting a few to raise, but then when I start penciling it out, I'm creating more another job for me and I don't really need another job. And it pigs are so cheap at the cell barn, so it just just drives me crazy that the the on the farm small farm or raising some hogs is not like it used to be
1: no if if you're in a commercial market it's i don't think there's any way to compete unless you're raising them really large scale in a barn in fact we've got it right. and even then it's in, incredibly difficult to do if you're doing it oh yeah at a mississippi in a mississippi pork producers meeting um i think it was almost three years ago now i met a guy who uh is doing it independently um Prestige Farms typically raises them here in Mississippi they've got the market for the commercial stuff here um but the the independent producer in north mississippi he had at the time 35 to 40 sale fair to finish operation which you're not familiar I mean you're you're talking about each Sal produces 10 piglets, you know, two and a half times a year. So it, it's very easy to see. I mean, he's raising several thousand hogs a year. Oh, um yeah. And he's selling them independently, but he's got just a very, very niche market that he's selling to. Not not niche in terms of pastured pork, but, but niche in terms of there's a, a place that he was selling them to that does some sausage hogs. That raises real oh, particular yeah. types of, of sausage here. Um, and they would give him a little bit of a premium. But he was still raising his pigs cheaper. Uh, he was selling his pigs cheaper than I could have mine processed. I mean, oh, it, was, wow. yeah. it was ridiculous. I mean, his cost and my cost were so much different. In large part because he was mixing and grinding his own feed. But he was, he was just doing it on a very different scale. Um, But he was competing with that kind of of market. And for us, you know, my market is I'm doing direct-to-consumer sales, both with our pork, with our beef, and with we've also got honeybees. I haven't mentioned that yet. And so we're doing direct-to-market sales, whether we sell whole or half pigs for someone to purchase. We take them to the processor. You know, they pay us for the pigs. They pay the processor for the processing and all. Uh, and then we, we do do some sales of retail cuts. Um, we've had some production issues with pigs over the last couple of years. That's a whole other story uh, with some goofy breeds. But all that to say, you know, unless you're doing it for a couple pigs for your own family, that's a really good thing. Or unless you're you're trying to do um, kind of a direct-to-consumer sales, it's really hard. With beef uh regenerative farms can can compete fairly well even in a conventional market um with pasture based systems because most be you know most cows are sold to the you know through the sale barns anyway right but with pigs unless you have that that direct consumer to sales it's it's really difficult and direct selling uh, anything is is really really hard unless you have a product that people just get excited about. Honey, for example, people get excited about and they'll buy local honey because you don't even have to you don't even have to advertise it. You can just when people find out, they start begging you for it. But with beef and pork, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole different story, <laughs> yeah. especially because it's more expensive.
0: Yes, so. yeah. Now with your pork and getting started with your pigs what was your management philosophy when you got them? I know you started with those guinea hogs, but then you moved on to some more traditional breeds.
1: Yeah. So I started with the guinea hogs, moved to traditional breeds, moved to more lard hogs, and now I'm back with more traditional breeds. And that that cycle in and of itself is, a, a, the guinea hogs just got me started. The meat was great, um, but you've got a a hog that takes 18 months to get to processing weight of 150 pounds. Right, yeah. It's a lard breed, not quite like you get with a pot-bellied pig, but um, requires a good bit of feed, uh, even if they do forage better, which I'm not sure that they do, but that's another argument for another day. And even even if you only feed a lard pig one pound of a grain ration per day, whereas with a meat pig, you feed them, an average of five pounds of grain per day. If you stretch that lard pig out to two years, they don't, and there's, they're not going to perform that well with even one pound of grain, but you're not, it, it, it just, you're not saving the feed cost that I assumed that you would save. Um, oh yeah. We tried those, the meat pigs and I was getting them. They were show pigs from a guy, um, that grew up with my wife actually um near where my in-laws live and um they were coals from his show pig breeding show pigs and so they were pigs that didn't have quite the right coloring for herefords we had uh we got one um hampshire that uh kept jumping out of his pens in the barns he was ready to call him and he sold them to us yeah um but they just didn't quite for whatever reason you know the the coloring for the hereford he had two. one of you know they may have too much white on their face or body no oh, yeah. um you know just that kind of stuff and um that's what we started off and those we performed well we sold those and you know we'd raise eight or ten at a time four or six at a time whatever we could get and we sold those to individuals and we did well with them but i had a problem getting pigs when we needed them and so oh, yeah um I'd heard about these mangalitsas. Uh, you know, one of your recent podcasts I was listening to was talking about somebody. Uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name. That was um, raising wagyu crosses with, um, I think Devon. I, I don't quite remember the exact details there, but oh yeah, anyway. he's
0: doing Devon and wagyu crosses.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and so, yeah. so people call
1: mangalitsa pigs the wagyu of pork. And I'm not even going to comment on that, but it may be the wagyu of pork. But when you've got a pig that instead of taking six months to processing, takes. Uh, I've got two left from our first farrowing that was over two years ago. I've got per- Berkshire Duroc crosses that were born in. August, no, September of this past year. And those Berkshires are already bigger than the mangoes that are two years old. Oh, wow. And on top of that, when you have, you know, a lard pig that's 70% fat and 30% meat versus a meat pig that you raise to 300 pounds or so, maybe 70% meat and 30% fat. Customers customers don't want to pay, you know, $1,000 by the time they have it processed and whatever. For a seventy percent fat product, it just they don't. I, I couldn't justify selling them. So anyway, we got yeah, rid of yeah. them. Also because of some temperament issues and pigs jumping through fences, that <laughs> that's a whole another story. Um, but so so this past April, we've uh, so a year a little over a year ago now we we acquired these Berkshire's, and um, they have done they've performed really well. Um really good foragers uh some of them are better mothers than others, and so we're kind of culling through our breeding stock oh, yeah. um so but that's that's kind of the a brief roller coaster ride of of how we've gotten to um to kind of
0: settled on our our meat pigs now um we start up yeah with went. So when I talk to my wife about getting bigs, you know, I'm thinking I'll, I'll get a couple, maybe three or four. Uh, my wife says I always jump in the deep end of the pool. So so when I think about one, it's always multiples of that, you know. Yeah. Uh, so one or two, it'd probably be five or six. Anyway, so my goal is to to put one into deep freeze for us and then try selling some others. And I read these things up. About the Mangaliscas and the um, Guinea Hogs and the cooney Coonie pigs, and they sound interesting to me. But I've told her I just don't, I just don't know about it because they're all that lard type. So it's really interesting to hear that perspective of you going through that journey and using some traditional breeds and using some lard types and figuring out what works for your market. Um, yeah, so I appreciate that insight. There, there's some
1: detailed. There, there's a, I mean, and this isn't really the place for it, but there, I, I think there are particular niche markets for Cooney Coonies, Idaho Pastured Pigs, um, uh, Mule Foots, um, oh yeah, American Guinea Hogs, that that can perform pretty well. the The problem is for someone who has never raised pigs. And then to go buy a two hundred dollar or hundred dollar feeder pig that's a Cooney Cooney. Typically, they're going to be more. Um, right. But to spend a couple hundred dollars on something that's going to take. Now, some people say Coonies can get can grow quicker than you know, twelve or fourteen months. That's fine. But even if it takes twelve months. Um, it until you have experience with the standard livestock. I don't think you can really fully appreciate the specialty stuff. Um, oh, yeah. I, I've got a, a friend who, or a couple people have asked me actually if we'd ever considered raising Wagyu cattle. And understand, I, we grew up raising cattle my entire life. I mean, from the time I was three, my dad, or one, my dad changed my diapers on the farm because I wanted to go to the farm with in cold, cold weather. But the problem with that, in my mind, raising, especially for retail sales, anybody can raise and manage cattle and sell them to a, you know, through the the, uh, conventional market. Right. I've been raising grass, I've been finishing cattle now for six years, and I'm still... In my in the infancy stages of learning how to really really finish an animal, and we raise some animals on we i finish every couple of years i I'll finish some beef on grain just because uh one customer uh and some of his friends they've had so much bad experience from people finishing grass fed cattle that didn't know what they were doing i mean they spent two or three thousand dollars three different times for garbage meat because the people didn't know what finished animals really were. Oh, um, and I don't, I really prefer not to finish them on, on grain, but that's a a whole nother story for a whole nother day. But my, my point is like this past year, we didn't produce any grass finished beef because, uh, we didn't have the forage available, um, because some drought, also, in part because of some health issues on my part, but we didn't have the forage available to have a really good finished animal. When it comes to grass finishing beef, for example, I, I'm still in my infancy stages of learning how to finish an animal that you can buy for a thousand dollars at a sale barn to try to finish a five thousand dollar animal. You, you see what I'm saying, and and get that right, yeah. value of it when I'm still learning. How to do it well? I, there's there's no point, and and it's not quite a, a apple to apple comparison. Maybe an apple to pear comparison with pigs, but until you get a good idea in terms of management, in terms of how fast they grow, with pigs, pigs are much easier to finish. It's a much easier animal to get a finished product out of than beef because they're monogastrics and and do green, But it's really hard to appreciate. The value of of like a cooney cooney, and to compare with other with your customers until you know what a standard meat pick is. Oh and yeah. If, and if you were to get a Mangalitsa and try to feed it out to six months, you could you could get it to two hundred fifty pounds, but you're gonna have eighty percent fat, and the pork chops are gonna be the size of a half dollar, not not what you're expecting, and oh you, yeah, you're just gonna have a ball of lard. And so that that's anyway, that that's that, that's a little bit of a tirade that I, I probably got to keep my mouth quiet about. But it's it's just it's it, it's understanding, I think, what my philosophy is. Let's get to the standard and then deviate from that as I learn kind of how to raise the standard breeds and how valuable. Um that's that's, I think, my best plot
0: fl- approach. Uh, for me anyway and and i I see that because also you're you're working with if you're working with the commercial breeds or more standardized breeds you're you're dealing with a lower cost animal you're dealing with a exit strategy you know one thing in real estate they always talk about multiple exit strategies, so mm-hmm. I'm gonna rehab this house or um uh, renovate this house. what's my exit strategy do i Do I go in the bank and I refinance it and I rent it out? Do I sell it? Do I turn it into a short-term rental, medium-term? Multiple exit strategies. If you go too specialized on your livestock that's expensive and there's not a market through conventional channels, then you don't have an exit strategy but to finish out the project you were started on. My exit strategy for the Mangaletes is to
1: follow up with your point. When they started jumping through fences and wound up at a neighbor's farm a mile down the road in an hour and a half, I pulled up with a twenty-two rifle, and that was my exit strategy. He managed to, to catch them, and I got a livestock trailer. But for, you know, eight months, um, I kept the, the, those Mangaletes in a tight pen that they could not get out of. And I processed them, and we had barbecues. I gave away pork. I did everything. I couldn't justify selling them because why would you want to pay even $100 for an animal? So we had a lot of church barbecues. We had, um, oh, yeah. I gave it a lot of meat away, and I stocked our freezer with a lot of ground pork. Actually, it's mostly gone. We ate it at the time. but, um. And so I lost a lot of money. Oh, cool. I, I I don't even yeah. want to count how much money I lost on those mangalitses just because
0: um, of the slow growth rate, specialty breed. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. It really was. But the thing you have to remember, education's not free, and you learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Yeah. So when we talk about your your pigs, tell us about your infrastructure and how you, how you have your farm set up to manage your hogs. Well, one thing I learned, uh, probably the most valuable
1: lesson, if you are going to farrow pigs on your farm, and if you're going to have a boar, keep the boar and the pigs that you do not want bred a long way from each other. um yes. doesn't matter what kind of fencing you have. You know, we've done electric fencing with a cow since I was a kid. Uh a boar will jump through a 10,000-volt electric fence to breed uh, 17 gilts. And then you will have, a Mangalitsa boar will anyway, and then you'll have oh. 200 piglets rather than um, with gilts that don't even know how to take care of them that weren't even breeders. Um, oh, I learned yeah. that one the hard way. Um, but so Sounds our, like it, yeah. Our farm is roughly 300 acres. I say our farm, it's my dad's land but um the farm is roughly 300 acres but it's the way it, it kind of weaves around the town it, there's about a mile apart from one end of the farm to the other so our breeder pigs are on one side and that once we wean the pigs i take them all to the other side uh we do castrate the the little boarlings um so they don't breed their sisters and don't have to deal with boar taint oh, yeah. and some of that kind of stuff so, the infrastructure we use is uh, electric fencing, um, the netting, you know, uh, people get excited about electric netting, uh, and it, it works, but it's just labor-intensive. Oh, it um, is. I agree, yes. And, it, you know, it's also outrageously expensive, and it's hard to keep voltage high on on netting with grass and stuff. It's just... um. So, I use... Uh, we train our pigs to high-tensile electric fencing. Um, it works well. Most good. of the time I can keep our pigs in with a single strand of polywire. Um, but I've try to. i been designing our paddocks and slowly increasing the infrastructure so that we keep um, two-strand electric, high-tensile electric fencing, 12 and gauge wire uh, for our paddocks. And then if I want to, I can use, you know, short, um, stretches of, of poly wire, um, you know, to limit a little bit further the, the paddock oh, size yeah. of our pigs. Like right now, um, I try to keep one acre size paddocks in our field. Sometimes it's two acres and that'll work really well for a group of 50 pigs for a week or two. I try my best to use the high tensile electric fence and then supplement with the poly- or polybraid, polytape, you know, any of that, oh, yeah. that simple stuff that's not
0: <laughs> right. That's not the electric netting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now when you so you mentioned one acre there and fifty pigs or so, but so one acre, you have them on there and then you move them. When you move them, what's that one acre look like? It depends on the time of the year. It it depends
1: on so many factors. So let me back up for a second. So one will have like right now i've got my feeder pig all our pigs in in a wooded lot so um my feeder pigs there's 21 of them or so 22 um and they are in a 4 acre wooded lot i just it's hard it's really hard to subdivide woods without anyway, oh, yes. a lot of work but um and so they're there for another week or so but where i'm I'm pretty intentional about in our pasture fields of growing cover crops specifically for pigs to consume. Um, cows, because they're ruminants, sheep and goats. Yes, they all have their nuances of what they graze and what they, how well they perform. But pigs, I don't mean this to sound this flippant, because you do have to be intentional about nutritious forages for cows. But cows, you know, you can put them on a mediocre grass and they'll they'll perform pretty well. They may not do outstanding. But they'll perform okay. Pigs, you can put them on an outstanding grass, and unless you're giving them their full grain ration, they'll eat the grass. They just don't perform well on it. So we're growing things like buckwheat, brassicas, uh, cowpeas, more nutritious cover crops for the pigs. Uh, We keep sorghum sedan grass like in the summer. Um, We got cool season and warm season mixes. And so very intentional about grazing those and it, and it all when we move the pigs on and off it depends on the weather like in we're we're in the season of mud here most people have snow and ice and we have <laughs> mud in Mississippi yeah um but you know it's going to be a muddy mess anywhere you put the pigs it, it doesn't matter Uh in the woods it's not right. quite as bad but um in in our fields um like with a, with our cover crops if we're trying to maximize the nutrition, there will be the sorghum sedan grass in our warm season cover crop mix will still be standing. Um, they'll eat a lot of it, but they'll, they graze the buckwheat, whatever brassicas have grown, if there are any that have grown, the cow peas uh, and some of those others. And then they move to the sorghum sedan grass and they'll eventually eat the sorghum sedan grass to the ground, but they're new. you you. You've got to, if we're trying to minimize the grain, we've got to move them quicker. Um, so you'll have the sorghum sedan grass that's still kind of sporadic, and it regrows really well. Um, Our warm season crop mix, when the buckwheat, like if it's already gone to seed, when we move the pigs off of it, the buckwheat regrows. It's it's Oh, yeah. It's crazy. It, it, it grows from seed. Buckwheat, once it's grazed at any stage, it doesn't really regrow very well sometimes it does but it typically doesn't but if it's gone to seed it'll it'll regrow the sorghum sedan grass of course regrows not from seed but from you know its its roots um cow peas and that kind of stuff some of them regrow decently um and so depending on our goal if we're trying to get the pigs to kind of terminate the cover crop mix uh so that we can plant something else. like if it's august and we want to plant our cool season cover crop mix we'll leave the pigs on there a little bit longer and they'll they will make I mean they'll root everything up and it looks like a moonscape um there <laughs> yeah. are um typically I don't do that very much cuz I found that I can plant a little bit easier um you know our our warm season crops I mean, our fall cover crops, I've I found that if there's a, like, if the sorghum stand, if there's still some, some, uh, fort, not uh, plant matter, that I can just broadcast the seed and it'll, it'll kind of regrow from itself. But so I've stumbled around a lot to answer that question, but the short of it is depending on how they're managed, um, it can look like, um, a sporadic moonscape with some plants there or it can look like, it's been completely annihilated, and um, look. Uh, really, it can look like the moon. Um, but I try to move them a little bit faster, um, primarily not because I'm trying to save the soil, but because I'm trying to to maximize the nutrition that the pigs get from those cover crops. Oh yeah,
0: and then you mentioned a fair number of of different plants you're putting in there, and if I understood you right, you're just broadcasting those? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, um, yeah. Our,
1: historically, our warm season cover crop mix, I've disked in. Oh, okay. I just acquired a, a no-till drill. That's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. Um, But we've taken a lot of really worn out pasture that has not performed well historically. Um, and... Sorghum sedan grass is by far the single best uh, soil improvement tool. Um, I think that you can find it, it uh, especially in our clay soils, hot weather. You know, in, in the warm season, we can get three or four growths without really any uh, synthetic uh, fertilizers. Um, it's better grazed with cows, they perform outstandingly on it. But, um, you know, to get a good stand of it and for it to perform well, we've just had to disc up the soil um, and oh, then yeah. broadcast it and lightly disc over it. Now, the second, after we remove, after we've grown cover crops in an area before like that, the planting is much, much easier. And I think we'll we'll be able to do this sorghum. I think we'll be able to plant it warm season cover crops with this kind of, cheaper no-till drill um it's a little six foot uh drill from lmc ag but pulled behind a 40 horsepower tractor so it's not oh yeah it's it's a real real small small drill a uh, six foot wide but with that sorghum finger as we disc it in but what i'm finding is if we have like planting our fall stuff the brassicas the buckwheat um Austrian winter peas, um, cereal rye, oats, that kind of stuff. If we have soil moisture in August and September, what I found is I can broadcast the seed and then flail mow the the um, whatever's left of the sorghum sedan grass. If there's about six inches of growth on it, it just forms a little mulch over the seed, and when it gets when we get a little bit of rain or whatever, um, it provides just enough of a growing environment for those crops to, to sprout on their own. I really do not like disking in crops at all, but it's, um, you know, even that little inch and a half of the soil surface that we disturb to do that. I, I prefer to avoid it when I can. Um, buckwheat we can broadcast, and if we get soil moisture, and if there's a little plant litter on the ground, it it grows. You know, we can get three crops of buckwheat a lot of times if we have enough moisture because... It flowers in 30 days and goes to seed in 45, 60, 70 days, and it can, you know, regrow. Uh, really, really nutritious for all livestock, but especially for pigs it has a higher lysine content. Um, so we have a lot of diverse ways that we plant. Um, and, you know, when you're only growing 20 acres, shoot, even for our 300 acres, we can't justify a $60,000 10-foot pasture no-till drill that oh, I, priced, yeah. I priced one at sixty thousand dollars and and a row crop farmer can justify that kind of cost um not because there's so much profit but just because there's so much scale but for us oh yeah um you know 30 cows that they're, they're, it's not going to bring that much revenue even if you're finishing all those livestock out you can't justify that kind of expense uh, if you're trying to be anywhere close to a profitable enterprise Um, and so that's been a a pretty big struggle but it's been effective i think
0: um we'll see how that how that goes though i would love to have a no-till drill but i price them and so i'm you know you get a price on those there's no way it pencils out for me uh, yeah so i'm hopeful one day i'll find a worn out one that i can go through and repair but even even doing that i want it for about a hundred dollars so yeah i may be well, waiting and, quite a while
1: and that's the thing um i think for people who have more experience with equipment uh i mean I, i've got a lot of experience with heavy equipment but from my days roofing while i was in college to you know but those but operating a crane and a bulldozer and large track loaders is very very different um than figuring out how to use a no-till drill that that's a real specialized equipment that uh (laughs) you know um is is very different the um there are some for smaller acreages you know that they market for um that are marketed deer towards deer plots and stuff, and that's actually what this one is marketed for. Um, and they can be some, you know, they range in price from seven or eight thousand dollars to, you know, I think, uh, Kubota's. Uh, they use a Great Plains. They market their Land Pride when it's, I think, it's made by Great Plains. They're basically the same machine, but you know, those are sixteen thousand dollars for a six-foot no-till drill, and it's just. Oh. It's incredibly difficult. I think the benefit from pigs, you know, with cows, you may get better for uh, better performance uh, on smaller acreage, particularly, uh, especially if you're finishing them out on on grass on cover crops. You'll get much better performance by growing like a sorghum sedan grass hybrid pearl millet for the warm season. Cool season, you know, oh, there's yeah. some other things. And and yes, you can even save money and and eventually save money on hay and that kind of thing by having more standing forages. For pigs, though, where it really benefits is when you're, because they're monogastrics, you know, they, they need grain or really they need some kind of meat, but we try to raise them as vegetarians because of the, you know, health reasons, trichinosis and other. Right. But with mono, you know, so so you're raising them on grain. Um, when you pay 400 something dollars a ton for a swine feed, and each pig eats half a ton or a little bit more. For me, this this drill will pay for itself. And just in our pig operation, will end up paying for itself because it's so... You know, when you're raising 100 pigs a year, not to mention you're breeding pigs, but when you're raising 100 pigs a year, that's, you know... uh Sixty thousand pounds of grain, twenty-five tons of feed at eight. Oh man, that that's a scary thought. I wish I hadn't thought about that. At four dollars a ton, twenty-five tons is ten thousand dollars. Well, I, I'm sometimes I can do math in my head, and sometimes I can't. But it, you know, that's ten thousand dollars. Well, when you start talking about a seven thousand dollar drill, okay, it's not going to be as good a drill as that sixty thousand dollar ten foot pasture drill from John Deere. But at the same time, you know, I spent, I spent just with my small tractor, I spent several hundred dollars in fuel disking over the ground before oh, yeah. I started planting. Again, it's a larger tractor with a bigger di- disc would not have used nearly as much fuel, more fuel per hour, but it would have done it much faster. But my point is the cost savings are so so great because the investment in and grain with pigs that you don't have with cows, it right. it there there are significant cost savings in growing cover crops that also help improve improve the soil dramatically. Um, the benefit that sorghum sedan grass does not only for livestock feed for ruminants particularly, but in, to improve soil health sequester carbon to increase soil organic matter is absolutely outstanding. I mean until until someone grows it. It, it, it'll blow, it'll blow your mind at how effectively, um, it can improve soil health, even just in one or two seasons. It is, um, it is amazing. And so, and in the meantime, you're feeding livestock, you know, while growing oh, yeah. it. So it's, it's a, it's a win-win. Um, unfortunately it's not quite as nutritious for pigs as it is for cows. Um, but in a mix, it the pigs do eat some of it, and it really you know, helps it. Yeah, and it really helps too. So, um, but yeah, so the planting we've we've had, tried a variety of different
0: ways, and we'll see how this no-till drill works out as well. But yeah. hopefully, it works works well for you, Rob. It's time we transition to our overgrazing section. It's where we take a little bit deeper dive into something and we're not going to take a super deep dive, but I wanted to cover honeybees just for a few minutes. Um, why did you get honeybees? Where do they fit into your overall plan for your farm?
1: Uh, I would probably go back to that. Um, and <laughs> I'm not always oh, yeah. the brightest crayon in the box. Um, I, so actually when we, when we moved back to the, to Mississippi we had a rental house for almost a year, and then um we've bought the house we're living in now, and the lady that was there had honeybees and um she also had three chickens, three hens uh that was when we had hens um but she's she was moving back to Washington state or Oregon, I don't remember where exactly, but somewhere in the the northwest and um, wonder leave are honey and the chickens and I wondered honeybees, so. And I jumped in and said, "Okay, there's, there's your there opportunity." To try. And and I really like honey bees. They're it's a really fascinating animal, but they're um they're so so very different from any other livestock. Uh, of course, everybody loves honey. I think the thing, one of the things I like about farming is it's, you're always learning new things. You're always figuring something out. You're never doing the same thing over and over. And that's, that's one of the things about honeybees. It's such a different animal. I mean, going from pigs to cows or chickens or whatever. Okay. You feed it, water it, move on down the road. Yeah. There's nuances for each animal, but, but honeybees, it's, that's like you're on a whole another planet almost in terms of how they operate. Um, and so I, uh, I've i really enjoyed them there. Um, it, it's easy to get started in. It's easy to get hooked in. And the thing about honeybees is, you know, for the most part, they can be left alone for months at a time without having to be oh, yeah. managed. You know, whereas if you do that with pigs or cows, um, if you don't move your cows, um, they'll eventually either starve or tear down a fence to go get you know, feed. Um, pigs likewise, you know, will do something. Whereas honeybees, they don't require that type of management. Now they may swarm and, you know, the hive may swarm or the hive may abscond, but they'll, you know, they'll be there anyway.
0: Honeybees, I think, is one of those livestock or enterprises that stacks well with a regenty farm if they've got an interest in it and they don't have a they're not allergic to the stings, um, I love my honeybees, but I'll be honest, they don't get enough attention. I need to give them more attention um because they go well, like you mentioned, they can go months without me. in fact, I kind of I prefer my hives that that survive better without me, but you know, spring's getting ready to come here, and I'm gonna have to be a little bit more attentive or they're going to swarm, and then I won't get the honey production I like, but like you mentioned earlier. Honey is one of those things that to find the market for is not as tough. I I have not sold honey um, for the last few years for a few different reasons. Um, one of the biggest reasons, I get all these irons in the fire, and the first ones that gets left out are the honeybees, because they're easy to, to wait yeah. and say, oh, I can do this later, and then I, I neglect them too much. So I've got to do a better job with that, but... I always have people asking if I've got honey for sale it's yeah it's a constant, so yeah it's one of those things I see a few people doing. I wish um when I was little, my dad had honeybees. I had honeybees when I was in high school till I went to college, and then I spent twenty years away from them and at times I'm like why why didn't that pop on my radar early on because I enjoy them so much?' Just being in a hive with bees flying around you and and checking it, it's just everything else has stopped. I mean, because you can't focus on anything else but the bees, that's everywhere. But yeah. it's just a cool feeling. I really enjoy that.
1: Especially if you're doing direct sales. Uh, honey is one of those things that people will come and purchase from. Um, that's a lot of the reasons people use chicken eggs, I think. Because, hey, it keeps people coming back to the farm. The difference oh, yeah. is that it's much easier, much, much easier to get the honey than it is to deal with the chicken eggs. Yes, it's a lot of work to harvest honey. Uh, yes, you do need to manage. But at the same time, you don't have to check on honeybees twice a day. You can oh, check on yeah. them twice a month most of the time. Um In the spring, check them a little bit more frequently. And in the summer and fall, at least here, uh, you know, they don't need that much attention. Right. But the, and that's one of the things I like about honeybees, the, the, and they work really well with a lot of the cover crops that we grow. Um, You know, we've got clover in our pastures. Ironically, most of the time, the honeybees don't even use the buckwheat or the clover in our pastures in the spring because there's so much other stuff blooming like the, uh, uh, here, tulip poplar is uh, and privet well, yes. are the most dominant, um, you know, honey producer or, or nectar producing plants. Uh, this time of the year, like, it's, what, mid-February, so we've got um, elm and red maples blooming. The hives are building up their populations, which I need to go in and check them. Um, but, you <laughs> know, then, um, but like last year, and this is what, what was really – the big thing we had 20 acres of buckwheat blooming periodically and our honeybees worked the the buckwheat and the clover more this past year than anything else because we had a cold freeze that essentially killed all the tulip poplar blooms Oh Um, yes it was a low production year honey wise for most people in my area um just because of that late you know we had a 22 degree freeze on march 22nd i think something like that which is real oh, cold yes. for us that time of the year. Yeah. And it, it killed a lot of those blooms. Um, and so it it made a, uh, but that buckwheat, even though it's not the best summer producing plant because of the way it grows, you know, we had honeybees buzzing all over the buckwheat, you know, in, in April and June just because they didn't have anything else to go. So, so honeybees, I think, work really well particularly if you're growing cover crops for livestock. Oh, yes. Or if you're having, you know, or if you're interseeding um, legumes, clovers, and that kind of stuff into pastures for, you know, cows or, or other or
0: small ruminants. So they work really well, I think. Yeah. Very good. Rob, it's time we transition to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question. What is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? Um,
1: you know, before this past week, I would have told you um, Greengrass in the Spring by... um. Oh, I can't think of the guy's name now. Oh, my goodness, I'm having a brain lapse. But I I just listened to the audio book of Will Harris's A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. Oh yes, and it, uh, you know, if you can get around some of the <laughs> some of the direct language, um, it it was a really inspiring book. Not just because of it, it was telling their story. Not just because of the ecological benefits of regenerative agriculture and everything else, but the sheer determination. Um, that that he demonstrated by overcoming the obstacles that he had. It was um, really, really. It's been a really kind of encouraging, transformative book in many ways. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. In fact, I listened to it twice. Um, oh, yeah. In in less than a week, it's it's crazy. Um, the other one that I was um referencing though um green grass uh in the spring tony malberg green grass in the spring a cowboy's guide to saving the world by tony malberg um
0: the the reason ha, ha, have you read that book i have not in fact i hadn't even heard of that book till a minute ago when you told me well the the reason i like that book
1: um
0: and i think the best
1: books on grazing and regenerative agriculture and all that, it, they get you to think about different systems and different things in life. The reason I, I like that book is it's its not just about his story of dealing with regenerative agriculture or management-intensive grazing. Um, he's more of a cowboy from the West. But it's, it's more about rethinking, uh, you know, life in general holistic not just holistic grazing but holistic living in many ways um and I think both of those books have that in common I I really really recommend that book I listen to the audio books most of the time because when I'm on the farm that's just you know I have a I run out of podcasts to listen to um
0: but both of those books are very very And both of those, well, the green grass in spring, I had not heard of. Um, I see it was published in 2022. I'll have to look that up. Will Harris's book, I have, but I haven't read it yet. Our second question, what is your favorite tool for the farm? Hmm.
1: I'm going to have to say it would be pigs. I don't know how to articulate this really well, and I I think I've done a poor job of, of articulating how well pigs perform both in the woods and on pasture and on cover crops but they have the power to transform soil health now they can be ecological disasters don't get me wrong it's it's easy to really booger something up but they the um and you're not going to have a pasture that's even that that you can mow with a lawnmower you're not going to get that with pigs obviously they have such a profound they can have such a profound positive impact on the the environment the land from from uh rooting up trash in the woods I mean we found old these old bottles that look like they're a hundred some odd years old um that the pigs have rooted up to their ability to to you know um graze on on cover crops that then regrow and they can graze again granted you can do that with cows but it's different with pigs it's a lot it's a lot different with um and they just bring so much joy and life to a farm when you see the pigs when they see you and all of a sudden they start running to you um you know you see that little bit of excitement with cows when you move them into a new paddock and they're ready to move and the cows jump through and they kick their heels in the air you get a little bit of excitement like that, but man, pigs—they can—they'll get that kind of excitement. They'll—they'll they'll jump and play uh, just sometimes, just because they see you. Now they can be a pain as well, <laughs> um,
0: but I can too. So you know, ninety-five episodes in, and I don't believe we've had anyone mention their livestock, but for all of us, that's an excellent tool. We couldn't do what we wanted to without that tool. So excellent tool. For our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started?
1: I, I've thought about this over and over and over again. If you're if you're wanting to do regenerative agriculture, small farming, whatever, and be profitable, I would start with what's standard. If it's pigs, start with a standard meat pig. And then learn how to do that well and then grow. I would suggest, you know, um, yes, there are options for a lot of really good, really, really good quality. Um, I, I would get get with the standard and then kind of deviate from there because then you can learn and grow from there. It's just like honeybees. Uh, I had somebody call me. We sell honeybees, honey and honeybees. And uh, somebody called me and said, hey, I was told to get Russian honeybees. And I told her, I said, don't get Russian honeybees to start with. She said, well, they say they're really good. I said, I don't know whether they're really good or not, but I know that I've had Italian honeybees that have been wildly aggressive, and I got stung wearing full equipment and protective. I got stung over 60 times trying to to find the queen to replace, to requeen the hive, and I was to the point of setting the whole dead gum colony, not just the colony, but all the hives in that area on fire because I would pull up to the farm and the honeybees would start crashing into the window. So once you learn how to deal with more calm bees or honeybees with a calmer reputation that occasionally you'll have some aggressive ones, then deal with honeybees that are a little, that might be a little bit more aggressive, but a little more nuanced. That's my suggestion, and and I think that that's good advice for most people. Now there are outliers that do really well with alternative systems, um, but you know we don't have a good market for pastured pork in my area. So how am I going to try to sell pastured pork that costs, you know, my pastured pork costs almost. 75 percent more than what you get in the grocery store it's much better but i have a hard sell doing that with people much less a pastured pork like the mangalitza that's going to cost three or four times as much and it's going to be much fattier and you see what i'm saying that's i would start with what standard where you can get a lot of good advice from folks and then and then move you know in in other directions um you know, because then you can reduce waste. You know, be more efficient with time and energy resources, and and go from there.
0: Excellent advice there, Rob. And lastly, where can others find out more about you?
1: Um, they can always go to our website, DowdleFamilyFarms.com. dot com. Um, it's in the process of being updated. Um, that's been a a hectic thing to do this week. Um. And then probably they can get more information about what we're doing, especially if they're more interested in pastured pigs and reducing feed costs. They can do that on YouTube um, at Dowdle Family Farms. Um, You can just search for Dowdle Family Farms on YouTube or youtube.com slash the at symbol and Dowdle Family Farms.
0: We'll get those links in our show notes. Rob, we appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Enjoyed getting to know you uh over the last couple of hours. It's been um it's been really good.
0: I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media, tell your friends get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And Until next time, keep on grazing grass.